T.S. Eliot was an American-born British literary critic, playwright, and poet. In fact, Eliot's work remains at the high watermark of English literature. Very few could have equaled him in his writings. It is said that he once remarked that humanity cannot bear much reality. Humanity cannot bear much reality. And to a large extent, that appears to be true. For it seems often that we prefer to settle in the realm of unreality, that place of fiction, of escapism, and delusion. We retreat to the realm of unreality because of the circumstances of our lives. We live, many of us, in virtual reality where online communities become more meaningful and dear than even our own families and friends. We escape to unreality through mind or mood-altering drugs because we cannot bear the realities of life. Humanity cannot bear much reality. But if the realities of our lives are difficult to bear, there are other distinct, unshakable realities that we must consider and dwell upon. The Apostle Paul lists four unshakable realities that we must not seek to evade, but that we must embrace. These are found in the second chapter of Philippians, where Paul says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. In this section, the apostle is encouraging the Philippians to live in unity, a unity that would be enjoyed through humility. And he spells out the motivation for seeking unity with these four clauses, each beginning with if. If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded. It's calling them to unity. But he uses these realities, these unshakable realities, as the motivation to live in unity with one another. Now, because the, the writer, Paul, says, if there is any consolation, we must not interpret the use of if 
as though there is doubt. In fact, the Greek construction, what is the first, well, it is the first case and conditional clause that is here. And it means not that Paul doubts if there's any consolation in Christ or any comfort of love or any fellowship of the Spirit or any affection and mercy. But the if should be read as positive, that is, since. Since, then, there is consolation in Christ. Since there is comfort of love. Since there is fellowship in the Spirit. And since there is affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. And so he's saying that they enjoy these four realities, these unshakable realities. Now what we want to do is to consider these realities and consider the first of them, that is the consolation that they have in Christ. What I want us to do is really explore the nature of their consolation in Christ. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ... What do we make about the consolation in Christ? What kind of consolation do we have as Christians in Christ? Let me suggest three, and I'm going to reflect on these three. First of all, the consolation that believers receive in Christ is the consolation of permanent salvation. Paul says if there is any consolation in Christ, he uses the term paraclesis, a term that is often used to mean exhortation or encouragement or comfort. In this context, we believe that it refers to comfort. Now, Paul says if there is any consolation in Christ, and so when he talks about consolation, he's really talking about comfort, encouragement. When you look at the use of this word, particularly in the Pauline epistles, it appears that Paul views God as the source of comfort. One need not go very far, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in that opening word, that blessing of chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The Apostle Paul views God as the one who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. He calls God the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. God is the one who grants paraclesis, comfort some ten times in these five verses. Paul refers to the noun paraclesis and the related verb parakaleo. He talks about God's comfort in suffering and the comfort that God gives, the encouragement or the exhortation that he gives in the midst of suffering is the assurance of his commitment to his people to deliver them. My point simply is that Paul views God as the God of consolation or comfort or encouragement. This is also obvious in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 16, where again, God is viewed as a source of comfort. So Paul says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, 
comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. God is the comforter of his people. It is he who establishes our hearts, who assures us of his salvation and deliverance and of his love. And when Paul views God as the comforter, the source of consolation or comfort, Paul really draws on an Old Testament theme. For in the Old Testament, God is seen as the one who comforts Israel. One thinks of Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says our God, or says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. But the Lord said, comfort my people. And God was going to comfort his people by delivering them from captivity and by restoring them to the land. The prophet also, Isaiah, shows that God is a God of comfort. For the Lord, he says in chapter 51 verse 3, will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her, garden like the, uh, and, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. God comforts, and generally, the comfort that God gives to his people is a comfort of salvation. But in the New Testament, God is not only the source of comfort. In the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit is the source of comfort. And John uses the same root in the Gospel to describe the Holy Spirit. We read in John chapter 14, verses 16 to 18, Jesus says, I will pray to the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, another paracletus, and he will, he will, that he may abide with you forever. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. The Spirit of God is the one who is the resident comforter who resides in our hearts. He is the resident therapist that God has given to his people. He dwells in our hearts. He comes alongside us and encourages us. The salvation we receive from the Lord. We read that after Paul had ravaged the church of Judea, Luke writes in Acts 9 verse 31, then the churches Throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. God has given his spirit to be our comforter. But here in our passage, in Philippians chapter 1, in chapter 2 verse 1, Paul intimates... Or Paul indicates that they have their consolation not only in God the Father and in the Holy Spirit, but in the Son. And thus, it shows that comfort or consolation is the triune work of God. It is God's work, the work of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It is a triune God who comforts his people. He says, therefore, if there is any consolation, any Comfort in Christ. And the comfort that Christ grants to us is the same that we receive from the Father and the Spirit. It is the comfort of 
salvation. Going back to chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul intimates that they were saved when they received the gospel. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in my prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, making requests for you with all joy. The apostle Paul preached the gospel to the Philippians, and they were converted. And the salvation with which he comforts them must be seen first as an assured salvation. Again in chapter 1, he says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord comforts us with salvation, and the salvation with which he comforts his people is an assured salvation. He who begun a good work in you. Salvation it is not a work of man, as I mentioned this morning. It is begun in us by God. It is God's initiative. It is indeed sustained in us by God, and it will be completed in us by God. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. We can believe this because of the reliability of God himself. That what he begins, he completes. But this then, this salvation by which we are comforted in Christ is an assured salvation. But the salvation by which Christ consoles his people is a gratuitous salvation. And by that I mean it's a free salvation. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 29. These words which precede, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ. He says, for to you it has been granted on, belief, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him. It has been granted... It has been grace to you to believe. Faith, the gift of resting on Christ is a grace gift. Faith is not something that is in our hearts. It is not intrinsic to the nature of man. Faith is not innate to man. It comes from outside. It comes after conversion. It comes when the Lord Jesus Christ himself causes us to live. He gives it to us in faith. And faith, therefore, is a grace. It has been granted. It has been graced to you to believe. And this salvation with which we are comforted is a gratuitous salvation. It is a free gift of God. Any person who finds that they have a modicum of faith. So you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to have great faith to be a Christian. Your faith may be small like a mustard seed, almost invisible. The only thing that's needed to be a Christian is genuine faith, real faith. And if you find in you a little indicator of faith, that you do trust in Christ, you do see his cross as a means of your salvation, it tells you that you are saved and that it has been saved by grace. This salvation with which Christ consoles us is a gratuitous, not only is it an assured salvation, it is a gratuitous salvation. But the salvation by which we are comforted is a costly salvation. 
And Paul intimates as such in Philippians 2 verse 8 in that marvelous passage. Reflecting on the humiliation, the condescension, the incarnation of our Lord. When he says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even death, the death of the cross. Our salvation is costly. Because it brought our Lord Jesus Christ down from heaven. But he took on flesh. He became our servant and he humbled himself even further than that. He made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the cross. Dying on the, the cross with its stigma, with its shame. This salvation with which he comforts us is a costly salvation because it demanded the very life of the Son of God. But this salvation with which we are comforted, fourthly, is a supernatural salvation. Paul, in that marvelous passage in chapter 3 of Philippians, says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I have not arrived. But one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I have not arrived. I am not yet perfected. I cannot with any truthfulness say that I have finally arrived at the place I should be. But one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind, I don't live in the past. I don't keep living my life in the rearview mirror. I don't go, keep going back over my sins and rehashing my sins, forgetting the past. The past with all its failures and the past with all its successes. Sometimes we are handicapped by the past. Not merely the sins of the past, but the successes, the good old days. We were always thinking about you know, how wonderful it was in the 60s. And how great it was in the 50s. And my, think of the 30s. And we live there. So we can't see what God is doing today. So Paul says, forgetting the past, meaning with all its badness, with all its failures and shame, and forgetting the past with all the successes. Forgetting the past, I press, he says. I reach forward. And what is he reaching for? He's reaching for the prize which lies ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. What Paul is indicating is that he has received a call from heaven. The upward call is indeed the powerful regenerating call. What we call the effectual call of God. You see, God had called the apostle Paul. Called him from darkness into light. And called him to heaven and he's pressing towards a prize of heaven. But he's pressing because he's received a heavenly call. And the salvation with which Christ comforts us is an assured salvation because it relies upon what God has done. It is indeed a salvation that is gratuitous because it is a free gift of God. It is a costly salvation because it is founded upon the death of Christ. And it is a supernatural salvation because it comes through a supernatural call from heaven. Therefore, 
If there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort in Christ, the consolation that we have in Christ is first a consolation of permanent salvation. But the consolation that believers receive in Christ, secondly, is the consolation of the purposefulness of affliction. One of the many struggles that we have, even as Christians, is the seemingly purposelessness of suffering. There appears to be no rhyme or reason to our troubles. And at times our troubles seem to multiply. We just get out of one difficulty and we land into another. And they go on and they go on. We never seem, it appears, to escape. And when we look at our lives, we don't see ourselves living in any particularly un ungodly way. We are not committing any egregious sins, but we can't understand why it seems that even heaven has turned against us. And we become discouraged. When Paul wrote Philippians, he wrote Philippians as a letter to encourage those who were discouraged. They were discouraged because Paul was imprisoned. They were discouraged because they were suffering for the gospel. And one of the ways Paul encourages them is by calling them to consider the things that really matter. They ought not to focus so much on his imprisonment, but that the gospel is advancing, that it is bearing fruit. In our passage, he calls upon them to stand firm as a community. And he says to them that in, they are not to be terrified in chapter 1. In verse 28, he says they are in no way to be terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. One of the ways he encourages them is saying to them, I want you to look not at the things that are unimportant, but the things that are important. The gospel is being advanced even in my own imprisonment but he encourages them secondly by pointing out to them the purposefulness of affliction and the consolation that we receive in Christ is not only the consolation of permanent salvation but of the purposefulness of our affliction first of all he tells them a number of things about their sufferings first that suffering is a proof of salvation. Notice what he says. In verse 28. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries. Which is to them a proof of perdition. But to you of salvation. And that from God. He says you are suffering. At the hands of your enemies. They are opposed to you. They may want to confiscate your property. They may even want to put you in jail. You are the pariah of society. Well, listen, the persecution and the suffering that you receive, he says, is proof of your salvation. The reason that the world hates you, it is because you're on the side of the Lord. You need to know that if the world loves you, there's a problem. If the world thinks that you're just fantastic and everything is wonderful about what you believe and do, then maybe you just have to check whether you genuinely believe. But when the world opposes you and hates you, that is how they treated the Lord. 
And therefore, he says, you must understand your suffering, first of all, as proof of salvation. Those who are persecuting you, their action is proof of their perdition, of their damnation. But the Apostle Paul, as he points to them that Christ is their comfort, he makes it clear that Christ comforts them by giving to them the purposefulness of suffering. Not only does the suffering prove salvation, but suffering, he says, is a gift of God. Let's go back to verse 29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, if I were to say to you that faith, believing, is a gift of grace, I think most Christians, even Baptists, like you, would say amen. Some of you might even say hallelujah because you agree. Faith is a gift. It's a grace gift. You say that. But, but the text tells us that suffering is a gift. For not only has it been granted to you to believe, but it has been granted to you to suffer. You have been graced. You have been gifted by God to suffer. You know that suffering for the believer is a gift. Because there are times when you look at Christians, they, are, they seem to be down and out. I remember years ago I met a, a woman who was suffering from cancer. She had withered away. You could see her sunken cheeks and the bones in her face. And you know that the cancer was ravishing her body. And yet, when we begin to converse with her, there was a joy within her, a delight within her. And she says, I do not know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. Her faith was in the Lord. And while her family were greatly distressed, she was rejoicing. Now how was it possible for this woman, facing impending death, to be rejoicing in the Lord? It is because she has been graced. She has been given suffering as a grace of God. It was beyond her power to suffer with joy, but she has been graced. You have been graced to believe. You have been given grace to suffer. And so it is for us. Always sorrowing, yet rejoicing. Why? Because we've been graced. He says there's purpose. God has gifted us to suffer for him. So not only is suffering a gift, it's given to us as a gift for our sanctification. Do you not find it amazing that when God wants to make us holy, he doesn't just lavish a lot of presents on us, he does the opposite. He lavishes upon us suffering. Because God knows that if he is to sanctify us, every son or daughter that he receives, he must scourge them. I think of the Apostle Paul in returning to the areas where we had preached the gospel, to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. He said, we read 
Luke tells us that he returned to these areas, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must, through many tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. You see, every son that God receives, he scourges. God has graced suffering to us, because God has designed suffering to be the means of sanctification. We tend to run to God when we are in trouble. We tend to forget God when everything is going well. God uses suffering to draw us close. And so instead of thinking that God is against us, we must consider our sufferings as a sign of God's favor and grace to us, to draw us close, to sanctify us, to burn away the dross and the sins which so entangle us. The consolation that we have in Christ is a consolation of knowing the purposefulness of our suffering. Furthermore, not only is suffering a grace of God, but suffering is for the sake of Christ. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, for the sake of Christ. Not only to believe in him, but all to suffer for his sake. He consoles us. By showing us that our suffering is his gift and it is for his glory. We have been granted to suffer for the sake of Christ. Our suffering therefore is purposeful. Because what we bear in this life is neither arbitrary or senseless. But it is God's gift. It's part of our identification with Christ and it is for Christ. And anything that we bear for Christ will be rewarded by Christ. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, we receive consolation in Christ in knowing that he has given us perfect salvation. We receive consolation in Christ in knowing that our sufferings have purpose are intended for our good and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And third, the consolation believers receive in Christ is a consolation of future glory. Not only is it then the consolation we receive, the consolation of permanent salvation, and the consolation of the purposefulness of suffering or affliction, the consolation we receive in Christ is a consolation of future glory. But every believer who is in Christ has the comfort that comes from Christ that there is glory to come. You'll see this now in a later chapter where Paul in chapter 3 says, for our citizenship is in heaven. Verse 20, Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers receive comfort in Christ because of the salvation we have received, because of the present significance of our affliction, and because of the future glorification that will be ours. The believers in Philippi were proud of their Roman citizenship. To be a citizen of Rome was no slight honor. In fact, Paul was even proud to be a Roman citizen. You remember the story when Paul 
the military commander in Jerusalem commented to Paul that he had bought his citizenship at a very great price. Paul could tell him, I was born free. I am a citizen of Rome by birth. I was born in Tarshish, which belongs to Rome and as a province of Rome. I am a Roman by birth. And for the Apostle Paul and for the Romans, citizenship in the empire was not something that was empty or vague. It carried with it great advantages. In fact, William Barclay tells us that Roman law was clear. A Roman citizen could not be bound or scourged. And that is why, for instance, when Paul was beaten in Philippi, it caused such a consternation because they had done what they, had, they, they should not have done to a Roman citizen. You see, the law was clear. You could not bind a Roman citizen. You could not beat him. He could not be crucified. Not only did Roman citizenship exempt one from certain sufferings, but Roman citizenship bequeathed privileges. And so one writer says, if a man claimed to be a Roman citizen, no matter where he finds himself, even to the ends of the earth, the might and majesty of Rome were behind him. It doesn't matter where he goes in the empire. Wherever he goes, the entire power and the majesty of Rome was behind him. It is in this context that Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven. We are a colony, an outpost of heaven. Unlike those who are heading for destruction, whose belly is their God and whose glory is their shame, whose minds are on earthly things, the Philippians possessed a greater citizenship than that of Roman citizenship. They were citizens of a heavenly kingdom of the new Jerusalem. They were citizens of heaven. And being citizens of heaven brought them certain privileges. Paul goes on to say, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we are looking for the Savior from heaven. And this Savior will come. And he will transform our lowly bodies. This designation, lowly bodies, refer to bodies of humiliation. He will transform our lowly bodies that they may be conformed to his glorious body. That he's coming. And what is he going to do? He's going to glorify his people. We live in bodies of humiliation, bodies affected by sin, bodies characterized by weaknesses and pain and sorrow. But one day he will come and he will give us new bodies, glorified bodies like his body. He will change our bodies. The greatest commentary on this marvelous transformation is found, of course, in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says that our Lord will come and he will change our bodies because flesh and blood cannot inherit heaven. Mortals cannot inherit heaven, mere mortals. So he will give us a body like his, which will be glorious. A body that will be powerful. A body that will be incorruptible and spiritual. 
And Paul does not tell us how this transformation will occur. We do not have the details. But we have an inkling for we reminded in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trump, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. We'll be changed. Not a slow process. But rather an instantaneous act. A word of command that calls us from dead and calls us from corruption. How does the Lord Jesus Christ comfort us? How does he comfort his people? If there is any consolation, he comforts us with the gift of salvation. He comforts us with granting our understanding of the purposefulness of our affliction. He comforts us with the promise of future glorification. That one day we will have new bodies, glorified bodies like his body. I do not know what it will be like, but it will be certainly mind-blowing. Can you imagine? Jesus walking with the two on the road to Maus. He's conversing with them and their hearts are burning. They are on fire. The truth of his word is, has gripped their hearts. And as Jesus breaks bread, he vanishes. The disciples are in Jerusalem huddled, afraid of the Jews. And Jesus comes right through the closed door. A glorified body. A body with which he's able to eat fish, but a body with which he's able to traverse heaven and earth. To ride on the clouds to glory. How does he comfort us? He comforts us with a view of heaven that we shall be glorified. Many people find comfort in a variety of things. We find comfort in our possessions, the money we have, the assets that are ours. We find comfort in our education, and success in our profession. We find comfort in the children we have raised and raised successfully, or comfort in our good works. But none of these things are true comforts. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is the only comfort in life and death? It answers that I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Lord Jesus. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He preserves us in such a way that without the will of my Father, not a hair can fall from our head. Indeed, all things must work together for our good and for our salvation. He has assured us of eternal life. The framers of the catechism understood that true comfort can only be found in Christ, that I belong body and soul to my precious Lord Jesus. Amen. The only comfort that you can have is a comfort that you receive in Jesus. And in more particular terms, the only comfort that you and I can have is to know in Christ salvation. 
It doesn't matter how much money you receive from God. It doesn't matter how many gifts you have been given. If you have not received salvation, you have no comfort. Everything else you have are empty comforts. But when the world is falling in, and when the pressures of life are mounting, when we are besieged by enemies around us and within us, when in the entire horde of hell rises against us, we have this one consolation that we belong, body and soul, to Christ. Amen. That our comfort is knowing that he has lived for us and died for us and saved us. And when we have nothing in the world to rely on, we can rely on the salvation that we have been given from Christ. It is our only comfort. Amen. If there is any consolation in Christ, I wonder if you have received the comfort of knowing salvation in Jesus. The comfort of knowing sins forgiven. The comfort of knowing that your sufferings in this world are not futile. God knows them all. God has designed them all. He's designed the nature of your suffering, the scope and the extent of your suffering. He's designed the duration of how long you will suffer. You need to know that the path through which you are going has not taken God by surprise. It's not arbitrary. It's not meaningless. God knows the way you take. And when he has tried you, you shall come forth like purified gold. He's with you. He's not forsaken or abandoned you. But he's working in you to fit you for glory. The comfort you, you have in Christ is knowing that your suffering is working. You see, this earthly temple is breaking down. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. This body that we've been given the outward man is perishing, but by suffering, the inward man is being renewed, and we are being transformed. The comfort we have in Christ is knowing that when this life is over, when we close our eyes in death, or when Jesus Christ comes in glory, that we will be with him, that we will see him as he is. And that will be given new and glorified bodies. That's a perspective that is necessary when we get old. When we start worrying about the aches and pain. Because our comfort in Christ is to know that we are going to be given a body like his. Free from corruption and pain. And free from sin. Amen. But let me say this. That consolation in Christ depends upon consecration to Christ. You will not know the peace and the joy and the comfort that comes from Christ in knowing your sins forgiven, knowing that you belong to Christ, unless you're walking in the fear of the Lord and serving him. I was struck again by what Luke says about the churches in Judea and the surrounding territory. He says, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplying. The churches that the Holy Spirit comforted were first of all walking in reverence for God. You and I will never know the comfort that comes from Jesus Christ 
unless we first consecrate ourselves to him, that we give ourselves completely to live for his glory, that we break off our sins. What I'm saying is, Christ will not grant comfort and encouragement and joy and peace to those who are living in rebellion. And so if you're here this evening and you're not sensing the love of Christ, you're not sensing that you are his own, that you've been saved and that you'll be transformed, maybe you need to consider whether you're living in obedience to his will, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, I know my time is gone, let me say this. You and I have our comfort in Christ. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, you and I have found consolation and encouragement in Christ. We must then become encouragers and comforters of one another. Look at how the Apostle Paul puts it. He says, God is the God of all comfort and God comforts us in all our tribulation and watch this that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 4 he says the God of comfort has comforted us with all our tribulation in all our tribulation but he has comforted us for a reason that we may comfort any who is in trouble with the comfort that we have received. God has comforted us in Christ by reminding us of our salvation, that he's working all things for our good, that one day we will be transformed in his presence. But the comfort that he gives to us is that we may turn around and comfort one another. And that's not the only time he tells us that God has comforted us so that we may comfort one another. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-11 he says, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, he says, comfort each other and edify one another just as we also are doing. We are called upon to comfort others with the comfort we have received from Christ. I know this is tautological, and it doesn't even worth saying. But let's, let's, let's bear in mind that this discouragement is not a, a gift. It seems that some Christians have a spirit of discouragement. You know, they'll come to you and they'll tell you, <laughs> you just get a young man who just got up to preach, and the guy will come to me and say, you know, this is a wonderful sermon, but... And then he goes through 10 mistakes the fellow has made. By the time he's finished, this young man is totally demoralized. He has a spirit of discouragement. And then you ask some people, well, you know, you're singing, and, and then you're singing, and then come along and say, well, no, 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 that was a good song, but do you know if you had done this, you'd be better? <laughs> they have a spirit of discouragement. You always have the but. You and I are called to be encouragers. And part of our responsibility as those who have been comforted by grace, those of us who have been told of our salvation in Jesus, we are to make it our business to comfort the saints. Listen, we must afflict the comfortable. Those who are uncomfortable in their sins, our job is to afflict them. 
but we are to comfort the afflicted. Our job is to go alongside others and say to them, God has not ordained you to wrath, but to life. We are to tell them of the love of Christ for them. We are to remind them of the exceeding great and precious promises of God. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. We are to let them know that they are children of God and that God's design for them is that one day they will be trophies of grace. That even though their lives are a mess and a muddle, God is working that one day they will shine like stars in the universe. We are to encourage one another. We must make it our business to take up the phone and to call Christians who are missing. We must send the sick a message, a card. We must go in our pockets and give those who are needy help. We must come alongside beloved believers and we must be encouragers. Oh, how the church of God needs encouragers. Why? Because we have been encouraged in Jesus. May God help you that whatever you do, that God make you an encourager of the saints. That you focus not on the negative, but the positive, the good things that God has done for his people. And you bear them up. If there is any consolation in Christ, thank God there is comfort in Christ in knowing our salvation, in knowing that our affliction are working for our good, and in knowing that there is a day coming when we will be completely transformed. May we find comfort in Jesus Christ and so comfort each other for his sake. Amen.